everybody. You're listening to Cantus Firmus at the Movies. This is something uh, new I'm trying. We're, uh, we're doing a sort of theological and philosophical analysis of film or films. Um, I got here for our first uh, episode, Nick. Now, I've always said Quint. Is that correct? That actually is. You're one of the few people that actually gets it right on the first try. Got this. Yeah, spelled Q-U-I-E-N-T, so I can see the, yeah. So um, <laughs> uh, we've uh, we've sort of uh, been in contact some through Facebook. Um, was familiar with you because of uh, your work in Rethinking Hell and, and uh, some excellent stuff there. Um, so uh, it might be cool to kind of introduce yourself a little bit, interested in kind of what you're working on, your educational background. I think I understand you have education, educational background in film as well as theology. Yeah, that's right. Well, one, thank you just for having me on. It's it's a great idea and it's a great film. So uh, yeah, my, my background centers on, uh, I did a associates and a bachelor's in screenwriting hmm. and uh, also in film production. So that's kind of my undergrad background. But at Biola, you're kind of required to take a, uh, what's the term? It's a, uh, uh, it's not, it doesn't show up on your transcripts, but it's kind of a, it, it's basically you have to do 30 units of Bible. So essentially it's a minor in Bible, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not on your transcript or, or on your diploma. Um, so I have a minor in Bible from Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, as I say. And uh, once I graduated, about two or three years later, I went to Fuller Theological Seminary, and I'm doing a master's in, basically, it's New Testament. They've revamped their program, and essentially, it's a master's in New Testament now. And uh, it's kind of a weird shift. I decided I didn't want to make any money that I wasn't making in the film industry, and decided I wanted to make less money in ministry, somehow. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, so that's kind of my background or educational background. Uh, the reason I opted or suggested this film was one, uh, it was the first film or the trailer when I, I worked in a movie theater uh, for about three years while I was af- uh, after high school. And uh, when I saw this trailer, I was doing a theater check, which, you know, you walk down, you count heads, you make sure the, the exit door is taken care of, right? And stuff like that. And so I'm coming back up, this trailer comes on. And I'd never seen anything like that. And I was raised on films like Casablanca and like the old school noir black and white films and stuff like that. And when I saw this trailer, I was spellbound. Like I'd never seen anything like this in a modern sense, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was the moment I wanted to see this sort of thing. And it gave me kind of an insight into the, the power of uh, cinema when it breaks new ground or does something interesting. And I'd been a fan of Frank Miller for a while because my dad, you know, gave me a bunch of Batman comics and stuff like that. So it was kind of a coalesce. Uh, it kind of coalesced into a, a really powerful experience of seeing that and then deciding I want to make movies. And now, of course, I don't really want to, per se. <laughs> I mean, if someone threw a bunch of money at me, I totally would. But mm-hmm. yeah, that, seeing that trailer was kind of, the trailer for Cincy was kind of the impetus for me being like, I want to do stuff like that. And so yeah, that's that's kind of, so this film has always ha- had a special place in my heart, so to speak. Well, and this was like a year before the 300. So this would have been probably like really the first film that really used that very comic bookish sort of uh, aesthetic that I can think of. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. There's, there's another one that comes to mind that's slightly similar. Well, actually came out a couple years later. It's a, um, uh, an Argentinian film called La Antena, uh, but it has a little bit of a, a little mm-hmm. bit of that style, but it's uh, actually after this as well. So this kind of was unique for the time as for just as far as the yeah. look of it. Yeah, it broke massive ground uh, in terms of what you could do uh, in terms of uh, digital uh, digitization and and just the contrastation stuff like that. And it was really the first time I think uh, my generation had seen noir, but done so in a way that it was so, I mean, abstract and postmodern and so cartoony-ish mm-hmm. that it, it was a completely unique vision. And it, yeah. of course, a couple of Frank Miller's just 
trademark dialogue. You're just like, holy snickerdoodle, this is awesome. And so it basically took everything I was raised on, you know, the blue, the black and white, you know, Mickey, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Chandler and Selene and uh, Humphrey Bogart and all that kind of stuff and just wove it all together. And it's like, oh, this is something we've had kind of in our childhood that's basically been pumped full of steroids and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, mm-hmm. that, it, it broke massive ground and it told a really interesting set of stories that had never quite been told in terms mm-hmm. of characters and stuff like that. So yeah, it's I 100% agree with you. It, it really broke the ground. Yeah, and I, I was going to say too, I, I definitely, I want to talk about the plot a little bit, but but the style is, is kind of so interesting. It, when, it, when it first opens up, it almost feels like a perfume ad. Yeah. Um, and, and then it kind of moves <laughs> on from there and you really see the, the noir feel. Um, and um, it reminded me in particular of a, a Bogart uh, film called Dark Passage, uh, especially mm-hmm. because there's the character who's got the new face and, and the, the plastic surgery. He's, he's sort of out yep. of prison and he's trying to hide. And and so, uh, you know, th- that was one that came to mind. Um, I uh, We'll talk about it later, but I always thought, I also thought that uh, the, the, char- the priest, uh, Rourke, um, yeah. uh, his scene is very apocalypse now. Uh, it kind of has a feel to me. It's very much like Kurtz yeah, uh, yeah. or Brando in, um, in Apocalypse Now. Um, so uh, maybe it would be good to start with uh, just kind of going over the plot a little bit. Um, and uh, maybe I'll just start by saying that uh, it, 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 at first it felt like a series of vignettes, but they are connected. Yeah. Um, so it reminded me a little bit of uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, but... Uh, uh, maybe not. Maybe not quite so. Um, um, uh, uh, well, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, maybe <laughs> I think Magnolia is, is trying to be something uh, very, very, very high-minded. Whereas uh, this is high concept, but but not quite as pretentious. Maybe is the word I'm looking for. I like Magnolia, but I would yeah. say that this this film comes up as less pretentious for sure. No, absolutely. I um, remember in film school, Magnolia was kind of the pinnacle of what you could do vignette and intersectionality style, like how plots would intersect and characters would mm-hmm. intersect. And then I watched Sin City, I'm like, no, I think this is the kind of film that does it at a bare bones level, even a much, in, in a much more interesting and I think uh, fun way than Magnolia. Magnolia, of course, isn't fun to watch in terms mm-hmm. of fun being the operative word. But it, it does, Magnolia is, I think, too highbrow for it to work as a concept. There's too many characters, too much stuff going on. And I think that's part of the thing P.T. Anderson wanted was that kind of uh, discordant feeling, whereas Sin City, it's more of an operatic mm-hmm. kind of feel. And so it, it works really well. But I, I, yeah, so I agree with you on that. Sure. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and, and it, just to clarify, actually, I love Magnolia. It's, and, and, and I would say that it's not necessarily fun, except for Tom Cruise, who's brilliant in it. Um, yeah, that, that scene where he's being interviewed is one of the, the best scenes of the movie, personally. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, well, I don't want to go too much into Anderson, but um, yes, yeah, so I was, was going to say too. I, I love how he takes uh, actors that you uh, sort of tend to not take seriously and puts them in a role that suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, this. You know, I, I didn't. I couldn't imagine. This is perfect for this actor, first of all. But I never imagined him in a role where I really thought he was brilliant. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think he did that with yeah, Adam yeah. Sandler. And but um, so but in in the case of Sin City, um, you know, it's this um you know, kind of fictional city that, um, you know, it's very uh, kind of dingy, very dirty. There's a lot of violence, a lot of crime, a lot of corruption. And so um, there's these kind of, uh, these characters sort of connect in some way or another, but um, there's these kind of um, uh, uh, free agent uh, prostitutes who are one part of town and they're they're big and connected to the story. And uh, there's a, a cop who, um, played, by, played by Bruce Willis, who, um, 
uh, tries to save a little girl from a, uh, a pedophile and child murder who happens to be the son of a senator, I believe, powerful senator. Yeah. Uh, also named Rourke, who I think is he the brother of the priest? Yep, he's the, uh, the the brother of uh, of the Cardinal Rourke. Cardinal, Cardinal, yeah. And so, and I and I, I mean, I can't imagine that that they're they're being named Rourke is is not a reference to Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, we're not Atlas Shrugged, but um um um, Rourke is not Atlas Shrugged, is it? Uh, your uh, is that Rourke Fountainhead? Is Fountainhead. Rourke Fountainhead. Is Fountainhead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm ashamed that I know that I went through my Aaron Ryan face in that. I never quite went through an Ayn Rand phase. I tried Atlas Shrugged uh, when I was 12 or 13. I got about 100 pages through it, and I was like, I can't do this. But um, Well, you, you made it longer than I did. I got like 50 <laughs> pages and just shut it and said, yeah, I can't do this. Yeah. But so in any case, um, all these all these sort of, uh, you know, uh, plot points, I mean, it would be hard. I don't like, Can you think of a better way to sum it up than I I mean, it's it's tough to summarize exactly uh, the plot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's It's... At a, at a base level, you, what it is, I think, is you have characters uh, who were at one point probably honorable people, good people. And the, 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 the basic plot line is how corruption and sin, essentially, uh, eats away at any sort of decency or integrity that you have. And so it's essentially what Miller, I think, does with all seven Sin City novels is he takes, uh, he basically takes these heroic characters, you know, like, for example, Marv. Dwight and Hardigan for the purpose of our film. Marv is kind of Conan in a trench coat. I think that's how he described him. Mm -hmm. He's just a big burly man who has, you know, kind of an old school uh, medieval style of honor, right? And Dwight is kind of, you know, the Lancelot and Hardigan is, well, I mean, he's, he's, he's uh, the dirty hairy kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And so all three characters, what Miller does essentially is take these three characters and throws battery acid at them over and over for the course of 200 to 300 pages of plotting to see how they react to the sin in the world, essentially, the sin of Sin City. So mm -hmm. Marv is, you know, trying to avenge the death of uh, pro the one woman or prostitute, whoever was kind to him, i.e. had sex with him, but still in that kind of world, he, that's how he interprets it. And Dwight essentially is trying to uh, protect William from a corrupt cop, and that, of course, spirals out of control. And Hardigan, as you said, is kind of the one guy, the one shining example on the police force who is willing to go the extra mile to protect the innocent. And so essentially, that's kind of the, the broad scope of these three characters is how they interact how, or how they overlap with one another and how they interact in a world that is consumed by sin. So I think that's mm -hmm. kind of the basic plot line. I mean, we could go into detail, but I mean, part of the fun of this film, obviously not for children. I want to say that right up front. Do not watch this with your kids. Uh, but that's I think that's kind of the base level of how these three characters and the entire character uh, of the people of Sin City interact with a, a world of crime and sin and perversion and death. Sure. Well, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of add a note. I mean, this is an interesting film to start with uh, for sort of a theological analysis of movies because it, um, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, so to, to begin with, you know, if, if there's, you know, there's language, there's violence, um, there's, you know, decent amount of nudity and some sexual content. So, uh, you know, just to be aware, because I don't want anybody who's listening to this who, uh, would feel uncomfortable watching a movie like that to sort of go, oh, I should watch this without hearing this warning. No, um, I, I never, I never endorse a film for people that I know would maybe stumble somebody or make, make it a problem. It's like, I like this film. Sure. I can handle it. You might not be able to don't watch it. If you can't handle it, there's no shame. In sure. That. Um, so, but it is an interesting film to start with because, uh, you know, on the surface, um, it would seem to be devoid of theological content. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, but I think that the, the more you look at it, uh, there, there's a lot to really think about and, and, and discuss. And 
And uh, before we maybe go into that too much more, I will um, just, we talked about stylistically kind of some of the things that we, we noticed about it. And uh, there were some places, um, and I think, you know, this might've been part of the, uh, part of the appeal of it to some degree, um, you know, the kind of ultra macho um, kind of dialogue in places where it almost like seemed like something that like when I was like 13, I would have thought like, oh, that's really cool. You know, like that's really BA yeah. or whatever. Like the, uh, like the, the, the scene where I have some, I have trouble remembering character names sometimes, but the, um, uh, the, the ugly dude um, uh, uh, talks about, uh, you know, kind of how, uh, just kind of how, like how hard, how hardcore he is. And he talks about yeah. the, uh, you know, she, she tried to analyze me once, but got too scared. And I'm like, Oh, that's, that would have been something I would have put on oh, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. my space when I was 13 years old or something. Yeah. That's um, like your top eight right there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, something that I noticed a line that shows up in sort of the first two vignettes um, is um, I think it's repeated almost word for word, no reason to play it quiet. And I thought yeah. that sort of is, if you were to summarize the style of the film uh, in just a few words, I think that um, that catches it. <laughs> no reason to play it quiet. No, I think that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's definitely um, you know very comic bookish, very um, over the top in 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 the dialogue and the look of it and the violence and uh, the visual, um, and um, which is which is not 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 at all necessarily a bad thing. It's just you know it's it's uh, it's not subtle for sure. Yeah. Um. So I I, I wanted to sort of maybe start by talking about a few themes that I noticed and, and sort of see where you go with it and then. Maybe we'll just kind of see where things go from there. Yeah, um, go for it, please. Yeah, uh, so there were um, the key thing that I was seeing was the portrayal of um, violence as redemptive. Hmm. And um, uh, there was the line, um, uh, I'm killing my way to the truth, which I thought was um, also sort of one of those lines that was sort of a kind of a pivotal. Um, uh, line that sort of summarized something about what was what was happening in the film, um, and, yeah. and not just not, so, and, and violence is sort of treated um, as an act of love in a number of places. So uh, you know Bruce Willis's character, the, the policeman who kills the murder of the girl, uh, uh, um, or the, the attempted murder of the girl, um, and also emasculates the child rapist. Um, there's also the um, I need to write these character names down. So Bruce Willis, <laughs> Bruce Willis is what's his what's the, the the cops? What's his name? Yeah, that was uh, that was Hardigan. Hardigan, thank you. And the um, the uh, the the ugly dude who goes on after the uh, the, the oh, killer. Marv, the yeah. Marv. Okay, thank you. So okay, th then there's also and, and Dwight's the the Lancelot dude with the long hair, who's kind of the 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 suave bat, uh, Bond kind of guy. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. So uh, yeah. um, you know, Marv going after the um. um the killer, the prostitute. Uh, also, because... by the way, spoiler alert for anyone: if you plan on watching it, probably not the best time to listen to this podcast. Oh, but, sorry, yeah, you know, ten years or yeah, ten or twelve years later, it's your own fault. You know. Sure. And by the way, Bruce Willis dies at the end of Six Sense, guys. Sorry, in case you didn't know that. Uh huh. Uh, it almost doesn't make it in this one either, but um, um yeah. Yeah, so um, <laughs> uh, th there seems like a very strong um sort of sense of eye for an eye, and the one exception to that is Bruce Willis's character at the end um, sort of turns the redemptive violence myth on its head um, by giving up his own life in a sense to save someone else. 
Um, he yeah. doesn't, uh, you know, he sort of acknowledges that, you know, there's only so far that you can go uh, with violence um, to, you know, to redeem a, a bad situation or to, um, uh, you know, to act out in love towards someone else. Uh, it, it's it's very limited. And he sort of comes up against the limit of violence, of redemptive violence there, and realizes that he has to do something different. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, there's, you know, I, I you know, I, I wouldn't want to say too strongly that Bruce Willis's character Hardigan is, is a Christ figure, uh, but, the, but there there's certainly a moment um, where I see that. Um, mm -hmm. The... Uh, well, do, do, we want, do you want to go from there? And then I'll, I'll note the other thing that I, that I was sort of pulling out of it, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I, I, think, I think I would actually probably go further than you. Um, okay. I, I think he actually, I mean, for, for a literary device, he is a Christ figure. I mean, that's, you mm -hmm. know, that, that, that's something I think most people at least will be like, yeah, I mean, he's obviously not a one-for-one. One. It's like Neo in the Matrix isn't a one-for-one one correspondent. But I mean, most people who aren't Christian would look at Neo in the Matrix, for example, and be like, yeah, we kind of get what he represents, you know, at least... Mm -hmm the typology of it, you know, um, it's not like, you know, the Adam and Christ typology of like Romans or Corinthians, but, you know, we, we get a sense of the correspondence. Um, so the idea being, uh, the idea, I think, to build on what you said about the idea of, of the, the myth of redemptive violence, um, I, I think what Miller does with the Hardigan storyline that's really interesting is uh, the violence in that is very much about, um, Hardigan is really restrained with a lot of what he does. And if you look at the other vignettes, the, the violence, they're action sequences. You know what I mean? There's fight sequences on and on, Marv taking out 10 guys, you know, with a hatchet and, you know, stuff like that. You know, so it's kind of amped up. With uh, the other, with the Hardigan storyline, it's much more about how um, the spiral of violence kind of keeps going teleologically until it reaches a, a, a focal point. And it's, it's actually very anticlimactic, which is what I think Miller wanted. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And so it, it kind of keeps going and going until at the end, the violence actually feels real because it's being inflicted on an innocent, right? Mm -hmm. You know, by the end, you know, the serial killer has the girl who's run up and he's doing all, he's preparing to do all these horrible things to her. And at that point, the violence in the film has been really kind of cool. You know, like, oh, guy gets his hand cut off and there's white blood everywhere. And it's really just kind of cool, you know, kind of cool. But the weight of the violence and the Hardigan storyline keeps amping up. So it actually becomes far more... Um, uh, emotionally intense. And so I think what Miller does is essentially actually is saying at this point, and that there is a, a, a blowback to violence. You know what I mean? There's a sense in which the, the repercussions of these sorts of things have a teleological effect until they, they can only keep going until there is that final moment of when does this stop? And I think you kind of get a bit of that with Marv's storyline. Um, but in, Will, in uh, the Hardigan storyline, that's how it ends, is it's the deconstruction of violence to the point where the only way to end this is to commit the ultimate act of violence. And that is to essentially do what Christ did, you know, to, you know, bring that back around, mm -hmm. is to sacrifice yourself for the good of an innocent. Mm -hmm. And I think that ultimately is kind of Miller's commentary on violence is that the only way to be nonviolent is to basically remove yourself from the equation so that another person may live and continue on, so to speak. No, no, that's a very interesting take on it because, um, you know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm right, by the way, I'm just saying yeah, that's yeah. what I I'll, took out of it. No, that's interesting. Okay. So, so um, I'll point out that it, where I sort of saw something very different um, um, to begin with, um, there, there was a line, I think Marv says, hell is waking up every day and not knowing why you're here. And so mm -hmm. that, yeah. you know, Sin City is, 
uh, you know, the people in Sin City are people who don't have a sense really of purpose um, apart from, um, you know, there's a sort of sense of, um, you know, getting a little bit of love where you can, while you can. Um, mm. There's also um, the only other people who I sort of felt like seem like they have a sense of purpose are the people who are the villains. <laughs> and so, mm. um, you know, where, where, where I sort of watched the film, it sort of felt like, um, if um, if uh, Michel Foucault made a film with Sam Peckinpah, uh, so it's like there's this kind of very um, you know kind of um, so one so okay one example is that religion seems to be painted uh, pretty much without exception as a source of cruelty, yeah, and religious figures view themselves as doing the work of God through cruelty. Um, yeah. The same seems you know the, the, the cruelty is also sort of this. Um, uh, common theme for um, um, politicians, anybody in power, um, yeah. sometimes just men in general. Um, there's sort of a sense that evil is patriarchal. There's two different times where I think Bruce Willis refers to a penis as a weapon. Yeah. Um, um, so there's a sort of idea that, that what's really evil are these traditional power structures. And so the heroes who are kind of anti-heroes, they're using the exact same tools of violence but they're the heroes because they're transgressing the establishment rules for one, but also because there's also a sense of relationality um, that exists with them that you don't see as much in the power, you know, sort of in the, in the, uh, the characters that, uh, well, I guess there is a little bit. I mean, you have the, the love of the, uh, the Senator, the Senator for his son, who's a sort of a twisted freak and that kind of thing. But um, hmm. but it, it's interesting to me to sort of see how the same, you know, kind of, Uber violence is seems to be justified when it's being done by somebody who is uh, kind of the dregs of society or doesn't really have power in a traditional sense. Uh, but when it's uh, being inflicted by somebody who's in, you know, has power of some kind, uh, that's how you know that they're the bad guys. You know, the, the way you tell apart the good violence from the bad violence is who's doing it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, one, one thing that was kind of interesting watching it, and it seemed like there was sometimes a juxtaposition of ideas that seemed to almost be contradictory. So um, as I watched it, I felt that like male sexuality, for example, was simultaneously viewed as hostile, but also was pandered to <laughs> in a sense. Mm. You know, there's a very strong sense of the male gaze throughout the film. Um, male yeah. sexuality is sometimes portrayed as good, but usually only when it's receptive, not when it's uh, initiating. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, it, it, I think there's, um, you know, a very strong sense of, um, um, you know, sexuality when it's coming from a female character, um, is viewed as, you know, more positive, uh, when it's coming from a male character, it's, it's a lot less likely to be a positive thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as, as I kind of watched that, I, I, I sort of saw, um, um, you know, kind of these, these sort of postmodern ideas, um, well, I guess what I would say and what I sort of see in um, um, the kind of left-wing uh, dichotomy of um, oppressor and oppressed yeah. and that that was sort of the, the framework that, that reality was viewed through. Um, and so mm -hmm. it didn't necessarily matter if the oppressor and the press and the oppressed used the same tools, killed the same amount of people. <laughs> what, made, uh, what made the oppressor bad was that he was the oppressor. He had power. And what made the oppressed good was that he lacked it or she lacked hmm. it. 
so as I watched it, those I sort of got this more uh, postmodern feel, and I it felt more like Bruce Willis's character, the the, the policeman Hardigan. Uh, you know, it's sometimes tough to get a sense of you know what exactly the um, well, I haven't read the books either, so um, you know what what Frank Miller is getting at in in the in the comics, and um, you know what Rodriguez is getting at, and Miller as well in the film. Um, so it almost felt like Bruce Willis's uh, sort of sacrificial act felt a little bit out of place with where the movie was going. But your interpretation that um, it was um, that violence was sort of um, um, being deconstructed in that. Um, conclusion uh with Bruce yeah. Willis's character Hardigan is an interesting one um and but it just I I, I it, but for me it almost felt like I was watching two different movies at that point well I, I, I suspect uh that's kind of what at least in that storyline that's what, what uh Miller and Rodriguez wanted or at least that's how I interpret it mm-hmm. because um what let's say Hardigan is willing to endure is some of the most intense violence of the film being beaten um, being uh, locked away in a cage and being humiliated and all these sorts of things he's willing to endure essentially the worst of Sin City in order for, to protect someone. And mm-hmm. so I think what Miller and Rodriguez are kind of getting at with this is we see, you know, to bring in what you said, which a lot of which I agree with, is the idea of the power structure, um, let's, say, let's say religion and politics, uh, the power structure of religion and politics, and at least we should say in, in an enlightenment sense, you know, the suspicion of these things, right? Mm-hmm. And so the issue then becomes, how does a, a, a good man, in the case of Hardigan, navigate this terrain? Does he, and basically what he does, he essentially lets it brutalize him until the point where he's not really human anymore. Um, and so we, we see the effect on that. But I think what, and this is something Miller, I think, said at some point is, if you want to see how virtuous a character is, throw them in sin and see what they do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, what I, how I interpreted his storyline, and I, it doesn't apply, I don't think, to Dwight's storyline per se, nor to Dwight's, but so we'll focus on Hardigan's storyline just to make that distinction. Um, what he does, what Miller, I think, is doing is basically saying there's a character that embodies what we would say is basic decency. Right. Something in the nor- in the real world um, is, a, is something that we accept as something that is just good and holy and just. And Miller, by making him an old man with a, I mean, it's no mistake that he has a heart problem, you know, kind of the a running joke. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that he's an old man that he's beat, he's about to retire. And this is his one last good deed in an exemplary career where he never compromised, never was corrupted. And is basically been keep, basically keeps going with the right thing is meant to be out of place because the city itself destroys men like this, mm-hmm. but it hasn't destroyed him. And so in some sense, the idea of, you know, the Lancelot, the, the, the one hero, so to speak, we see it embodied in him. And so that's why I think it feels out of place, but I think it's meant to. Um, whereas with Marv's story, if we bring back and bring back in the Enlightenment idea of, uh, of, of politics and religion, Marv has a small cross on, which I found interesting. It's not garish. It's not cool. It's just kind of a little thing that hangs around his chest and he kind of just keeps going on with his day. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at the, the religious power structures, it's very garish or garage however you say that word it's very you know showy you know it's everything you know there's cro- huge crosses everywhere the priests are all gross and detestable but marv it's it's weird that marv would have a small tiny barely noticeable cross on his chest the entire movie mm-hmm. i never understood why that is per se but it, it strikes me as something is kind of maybe what miller is getting at. and i don't i don't know if he's religious i think he's kind of a deist in some sense but he's very much um, at least politically now, he's become far more libertarian and has kind of a respect, I think, for 
history, as we would say, um, the idea of that little cross or that heart again, or even the, the heroism that Marv does or, or Dwight does is a symbol of something that is of a bygone era. You know what I mean? If we look at modern politics, you and I both are fairly close politically, I think. Uh, the idea of being of word in an environment of post-truth, you know what I mean? We, we, mm -hmm. we live in an era where you can literally say something on national TV and people either accept it as, a certain part of the population will accept it as, as gospel. Mm -hmm. And what I think Miller and is doing with the Hardigan character and to some extent with the Dwight and Marv character is essentially saying truth still has something even if it's old and dated and broken. And so I think that's kind of what he's trying to get at. And he uses the Roman Catholic Church and politics as a way of expressing kind of the base norm that we all accept. Big organization, corruption, corporatism, and stuff like this. It, it's a given. But what happens to the person who resists, so to speak? And not that stupid kind of, you know, political ease you find on Twitter, resist the powers or whatever, you know, anything like that. But you, you at least see where I'm coming from? Like, I think, am I making some sort of sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I follow what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's what I think he's trying. They're trying to get. At. It's a bit clumsier, I think, in the in Marvin Dwight story, but in Hardigan's story, for me, it's quite clear. Well, I, I would say, I mean, Hardigan seems like he's doing something similar to what Marv is doing, uh, but it's it's a little bit less um, uh, uh, sullied, I guess. Um, you know, Hardigan is still um, you know actively violent. Yeah. In a lot of in a lot of cases, but there's also. Um, a willingness to put down the tools of violence when um, he feels that they um, they're not going to get the job done, um, and you know, uh, I guess Marv is doesn't necessarily have that approach. He's he's you know he sort of leads with violence. <laughs> well, that, um, well, that's interesting too. Just to really jump in, what Hardigan yeah. does throughout the I think it's the prologue because they they switch time and stuff like that. What he does at the beginning is he keeps telling the character it comes out, out a little more clearly in the graphic novels. Let her go. Mm -hmm. You know, he's bleeding. He's got the gun. He's willing to kill him, but he's basically he keeps telling him let her go. Mm -hmm. You know, all these sorts of things. And there is kind of I think a resistance to actually using that cannon that he has, and mm -hmm. uh, you know this sort of idea of this is going to be really bad if you don't put the gun down, you know, sort of thing. Whereas with Marv, it's like, sweet, you know, <laughs> give me the hatchet, let's go, baby, you know? And so there's an interesting, I think, uh, the character dynamic or contrast between the two, I think is really interesting. Just, I just want to throw that in there. I thought that was really interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you know, I remember there's, a, I think, a bit where Marv is talks about interrogating a character. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and he says yes. he gets all this, he claims to get this information out of him. But as you're watching the scene, he's he's driving through apparently a busy city street and dragging the guy's face through the asphalt. And you're thinking, well, yeah. what possibly could you get out of this guy now? Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, but yeah, there's, there's certainly this idea we're going to lead with lead with that. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of the whole idea. Of, it's the glorification, I think, of violence. And so I think that's why the two are, uh, they're tonally very uh, jarring, I think would be a good word, right? I think you mentioned how Hardigan feels almost out of place, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what Miller wants, because Marv is kind of, it is, he is a barbarian in a trench coat. He's, Miller flat out says, yeah, he's, I think even Dwight, the character Dwight says, he'd be at home on some ancient battlefield swinging an axe into somebody's face. And so mm -hmm. it's the idea that violence for him is, just it's the air you breathe whereas with hardigan violence is not foreign but it's not something he breathes mm -hmm. it's a it's a, it's a it's a tool that's appropriate when it's useful 
or when, yeah, when he, he's, he's a just war kind of guy. He's not a uh, instant interventionist as, as we could say. Sure. Or, or the, uh, the good style of Jeff. There we go. Yeah. He's yeah. not about dropping bombs on their moms yet. Yeah. So um, I, I mentioned earlier, and I thought this was kind of interesting. If, if um, uh, Cardinal Rourke is uh, really trying to uh, kind of throw back to um, uh, uh, the character of Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, because mm -hmm. um, it, it, it seems that way. I mean, aesthetically and thematically, you know, he's a character who is sort of playing God uh, as Kurtz did um, yeah. and sort of, you know, uh, determining, you know, what sins are worthy of punishment and, and, and which sins are not. And, um, and there's also, you know, I, I, I kind of discussed this um, in, a, in a recent podcast, but the idea, and I kind of mentioned it earlier too, the idea that the left tends to look at things in terms of oppressor and oppressed, yeah. and the right tends to look at things in terms of order and chaos. And so, yeah. you know, when you look at, you know, any, you know, you name any political issue really, but I mean, one that comes to mind would be um, the idea of like police brutality. Uh, a leftist yeah. will always see that in terms of there's the, the, the militant wing of the corrupt government are the police and then the oppressed are the people being uh, on the other, on the other side of the violence. Uh, whereas the conservative will say, well, no, the police represent order and the people who they're beating down represent chaos. So this is necessary yeah. to, to, to save the future of, you know, so, and I see that sort of in, in, in Kurtz a little bit that he justifies, um, um, you know, all these, all these sort of terrible acts of violence that are being perpetrated on these prostitutes because they are, uh, they're, they're sort of representing this, this, um, um, this force that he views as sort of chaotic of outside of um, the way society is supposed to function. And as a result, um, you know, somebody who has power, uh, who's on that, uh, you know, that side of the equation, it's perfectly acceptable for them to, um, you know, use violence against them, to punish them, to remove them from society, um, and essentially to, to, to be God, um, to, to judge yeah. what's appropriate and what's not. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, I wondered if, if you, if you had a, felt that there was sort of something going on there that was, um, uh, you know, sort of hearkening back a little bit to um, uh, Apocalypse Now or the, uh, or the, you know, the original source material uh, underlying it. Um, I'm not sure. The, the idea of power is, is obviously a very, a very prominent uh, theme in here, uh, especially if you cast it in light of uh, the, the, the dichotomy between oppressed and oppressor, so to speak, mm -hmm. which I think is a very easy way to categorize. I don't know. I don't like it, but it's an easy way just to kind of categorize it. Um, and so I, I think the issue with Sin City is, um, is something I think Mayor Rourke or Senator Rourke, I forget his exact title. I think Powers he was Booth. Was, yeah, I thought he was Senator, but. Okay, that, that makes sense. Uh, got, or got his, bro he got his brother made governor, so he's probably a Senator. He, he's up there, we'll say that. We'll say, mm -hmm. we'll call him President Rourke. That'll make it easier. Uh, so President no. Rourke tells Hardigan, who is powerless in a situation, and he's got a gun on him, you know, he could kill him right there, and says power doesn't come from a gun, power is getting every, is lying, getting, getting everyone else to repeat and believe the lie. And mm -hmm. in this current political climate, that's chilling. That is, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think Miller would appreciate this, but that's prophetic almost, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So the sense in which you can get, you can say things that are just blatantly untrue, and people will believe them and act upon them, uh, reveals, I think, something that uh, has been going on in our modern political world is the idea of the strong man, 
you know, the, the Woodrow Wilson kind of uh, Ted, or not Ted Kennedy, um, not Ted Kennedy, who, uh, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. the, the, the idea that the president or the person in power needs to be the strong person, the, the, uh, the person with absolute power, you know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And in this story, we get kind of the conflation of the two religion and politics, but we also get, I think, the idea of, of how is power to be wielded, so to speak. And mm-hmm. so if you break down, you know, you excuse the, the religion and the political aspect, how does the, the relationship between uh, Marv's vengeance and Hardigan and Dwight, how do they act in relation to pe- other people, so to speak, outside of the power structure? And there is kind of a, uh, uh, I think Miller plays it up. Obviously, you know, women in the, in the film are super curvy and stuff like that. And the men are brutes and vicious and all this sort of thing. You know, he plays on the stereotype of the comic book world. Open up any modern comic and the women are like triple F and the dudes are like, so heavy they'll top over but what he does with it i think um in terms of sexuality and that type of power is there's a a a sense in which uh the man has power but he uses it you know for for in the instance of marv he's a huge beast and his goal and the goal he finds out was the woman went to him for protection you know because he's a huge beast and so he could protect her and same with similarly with dwight and more so with hardigan is the idea being of, of there's a, a power in certain uh, elements of how this is being conveyed. But mm-hmm. what is interesting with it is, is how the human dynamics work is there's kind of a one-to-one correspondence, which, which means that power is kind of deflated a bit. And that's what makes it so shocking when Goldie dies, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all these sorts of ideas. And so uh, when you have the relationship between the, the, we'll say the structure and the individual, uh, Miller seems to really want that to be broken and the individual to overcome and stuff like that. Whereas in the, the human to humor, the transitive element, you have the people are very much um, out of, almost out of one-to-one correspondence in terms of how they relate to one another, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, for example, Marv talks about how he treats women. I don't hurt girls. I mean, you know, that's something we see, oh, that's basic decency. But in that world, that's supremely chivalrous. You know, what Hardigan does, supremely chivalrous, you know, kind of a 1930s morality almost in some sort of sense. Kind of, oh, yeah, you give her a kiss and you send her on her way back home, you know, sort of thing. And I think that's not Miller's like, oh, yeah, let's go back to the 1950s. But he is commenting, I think, on the idea of power back then was you used what you had for the good of the other and you didn't lord it over the other. Mm-hmm. And what he's critiquing now is modern, the modern world has become not about that. And so when you talk about, you know, uh, people abusing their power and free speech and censorship and, you know, banning people, you know, all these sorts of things that we're kind of steamrolling into. I think this becomes far more prophetic in a scary way. Hmm. I, uh, you talked about the, the idea of chivalry and uh, one thing that I, and so to, 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 to be clear, you'd suggested this movie and I had a copy of it, but I hadn't had a chance to watch it yet. So I watched it for the first time pretty recently. Um, and so I, I uh, you know, maybe uh, on repeat viewings, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll note other things or, or reach different conclusions. But um, talking about chivalry, one, one thing I had kind of taken down as a note was that uh, trying to get a sense of um, how women are viewed or portrayed in the film. And, you know, in one sense, obviously, they are portrayed as, you know, sex objects visually. Um, yeah. um, but on the other hand, um, I'm kind of noted. I sort of noticed this dichotomy that women are simultaneously victims of male violence, uh, but on the other hand, uh, they are you know they can be sort of viewed as strong enough to take care of themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, you know Dwight's the character of Dwight attempts to help the uh, these these women who are who are prostitutes who sort of run the run their own show. 
but um, you know, the organized crime is sort of trying to come in and, and, and you know, bring them under uh, patriarchal male control. Mm-hmm. And so he attempts to help, but you know, it's it's questionable um, how much um, you know. He ends up he ends up helping somewhat significantly, but you know, on the other hand, you, you could have imagined the scenario working out without him being involved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, so uh, it was kind of it was unclear a little bit to me how how Miller um, uh, or Rodriguez or both um, were were trying to get me as the viewer to feel about women. Um, and I don't know if there was, if it was because, um, you know, Miller was of two minds that on one hand, you know, women are just as good as men and, uh, they're often put in a, you know, a t- terrible situation by patriarchal society. Um, mm. but on the other hand, um, I really like their breasts and, you know, what I mean? like, it's, it's <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't know exactly, um, if, if, if I didn't know if you had a sense of a coherent uh, viewpoint about how men and women were, were relating in this world and, and presumably in ours based on uh, Miller's interpretation anyway. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot that could be said. Um, I, I think first off, I, I think Miller, I don't want to attribute to him uh, coherence of mind in this sort of thing, but in my interpretation of what he said or how he, he wrote the story and uh, all that sort of thing, I, I think he's been in the comic book world a long time and let's face it, boobs sell. Half-naked women sell. You open up any comic book, even if it's for 12-year-olds, it's going to have the women are barely clothed and disproportionate, and the dudes are disproportionate. It's, so it's, it's a fantasy. It's, it's meant to kind of, it's, everything's on steroids and on implants. And so what mm-hmm. I think Miller does is he, he basically recognizes it and uh, excursives. Have you seen The Spirits, the film he directed? No, I, I I haven't, but I've, I've been interested. In okay, watching. yeah, watch that when you get a second. Because and if you watch it as satire, it's genius. It's one of the best movies. Everyone hates the movie. I love it. But that, but what Miller does in that, just to give some clarity, is he knows that this world is silly. He mm-hmm. knows that this world is built on the idea of the women are quote helpless and yet quote strong, and basically he has to play up the sexualized aspect of it, and that's just because that's the world of the comic. You have to, in some sense, imbibe at the well, so to speak, in terms of that, in order to subvert it. And I think, I don't want to say that's he's intentional. Like, yes, I'm subverting, you know, patriarchal substructures and stuff like that. But I think how the women are portrayed, in, at least in the spirit, and to some extent, Sin City, Sin City, is that he is basically, he's playing by the rules, but it's only because he's got another rule in mind. And so, for example, um, I mean, uh, in, in Hardigan's story, at least at least the world of sin city as i understand it is a world driven by we would say the male weapon as hardigan says you know he takes his weapon away both of them you know so to speak and what he does i think is miller recognizes that the world the modern world is built upon sex and is based upon the premise that men are we'll just use the word patriarchy there, there's a patriarchal bent and we see it in pornography we see it in in marketing we see this all sort of thing that appeals to the male ego and the male quote weapon and so I think Miller recognizes that. And so he has to play the world. And he portrays the world, I think, in an honest way. Women, in order to survive in certain parts of the world, have to act this way. Or they're expected to act this way. So they are, either by choice or by not. And that's, I, I think that's what he's kind of getting at when he portrays women like this. Because, I mean, let's face it, uh, there's a victimization element there um, that I think he tries to deconstruct, especially in Hardigan's story. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of... of of women being at the, 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 the pleasure of the power structures. I mean, we also have, you know, women uh, servicing clergy, that's a throwaway line, you know, it reveals that 
I mean, the, the sin of sex or, or of, of patriarch, patriarchy and sex goes so deep that it, it infects something that we all consider by, in some sense, good. You know, remember, we were all shocked at the, the child abuse scandal in the Catholic Church a while back, right? We're all shocked because that's something that should not be. You know, that's, that's black and white. That's so utterly contrary to the, the, the meaning of the Catholic Church or, or scripture or what have you. You know what I mean? So I think that's kind of what Miller's trying to get at. And I don't think he works it out because on some sense he does imbibe at the river of sensuality and lust. Um, and then on the other hand, I think uh, certain characters, how they speak about women kind of begin to break that mold. But it's, again, it's, it's the world of, of vice and to have any, any bit of virtue is to subvert the vice. The only problem is what do you see in the vice that keeps you from seeing the virtue? Yeah, that's interesting. It, well, and kind of um, a couple of things that sort of came to mind hearing you um, talk about kind of the women that situation, the, the situation that women were in and it, it, uh, in the film and sort of how that sort of the mirrors in some way, how, the role that they play in society. And, uh, um, you know, one thing that sort of came to mind is how um, sort of like the, the 50s and 60s uh, films of James Mansfield, where she mm-hmm. is essentially a Marilyn Monroe, but yeah. she is also mocking Marilyn Monroe. So she's, she's simultaneously the blonde bombshell uh, who's, you know, bringing men into the theater because of her sexuality while also yeah. sort of mocking the blonde bombshell idea. Um, yeah. And so you know, this idea of sort of using these tools to sort of subvert them uh, is, is maybe a sort of an idea that comes to mind. Um, yeah. It's like in order to make a really, the, the quote bad movie, you know, you have to know how to make an actual bad movie. You know, you can't just say, I'm going to set out to make the worst B-movie of all time, like The Room or, or, or the new King Kong or, or something like that. You have to know how to actually make a, what goes into making that kind of bad movie in order to actually make the movie. Mm-hmm. So everyone, you need to know the rules so you can break them. And I think Miller tries to do that. I don't know if he's successful. Well, you know, I would but say... I think that's what he's trying to get at. Yeah. Well, I would say one thing that, you know, um, seems like it may be something he's actually thought through a little bit is how um, women um, can often, um, with, you know, w- w- with great exactitude, um, um, use their power, the power and influence in the situation that they've been given. And, um, you know, I, I, I've heard some, um, you know, uh, kind of feminist thinkers who are, you know, um, uh, who sort of maybe challenged the, the feminist orthodoxy a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Christine Hoff Summers, you know, comes to mind as an example of one of those who sort of yeah. talked about the fact that um, feminism has, in some sense, um, undersold the power that women have had in previous generations when they didn't actually have uh, power in a traditional structural kind of way that, um, yeah. you know, women, women used the influence, you know, you were in the situation they were in and used that power, used the power they had um, you know, pretty cleverly. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, the, 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 I think it's my big fat Greek wedding, the, uh, where the, the, the husband talks about how, well, you know, the, the husband is the, is the, uh, the head of the woman or whatever. And she says, yes, but the woman is the neck and she turns the head any way she wants. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's sort of one thing that you're sort of seeing in the film that these women are living in this men's world, but they are not, necessarily being subjugated by men they are fully in control of their choices and their bodies um for the most part there are examples where in the film where that's not the case 
um but but, yeah. but but certainly in the case of the uh the the pro the you know that what do you i was gonna say what do you what do you call a, a i was gonna say a gang of pro, a gaggle of prostitutes i don't know i don't know what you refer to but um th th that's certainly the case with them yeah 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 and, and i think what mill what uh when we talk about modern i, I hate the, i hate the word feminism because it's such a hard thing to talk about now um mm -hmm. I think we're in an era of post-feminism, so it's kind of like fourth or fifth wave. I don't even know where where it's at. Like I don't even I, like I don't even call myself one anymore. I'm just just I think women are equal to men. I just you know just don't I don't want to have to talk about intersectionality or how men are evil or women are evil. <laughs> and so what I but I think what Miller kind of does, and, and building off what you said because I think you're largely right, is the idea of of I mean we see this in in scripture how women have had to essentially make do with what little they've been given. And when they're given something, they just, they just, it's overabundance. So Ruth saves her entire people. Uh, you know, Deborah, you know, all these women in scripture kind of exceed the bounds, so to speak, of what they're traditionally been given. And the women in this, I think, kind of haven't been able to really break out of that, but they're, how they cope in this sort of, this sort of world is interesting, I think. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. And, and another scriptural example that comes to mind is Abigail. Um, whose husband Nabal, you know, she, he sort of, she sort of works to uh, stop him from destroying himself <laughs> um, yeah. by being a lot more intelligent than he is. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, she, you know, recognizes where her limitations are in that society, yeah. um, but works very, um, I don't know, uh, thriftily, I guess you might say, within those limitations to uh, achieve the goals that she is looking to achieve. Well, perhaps uh, what Miller, maybe maybe what Miller is trying to do, and this might be what I was trying to say, but stumbled a lot on, was that he's, this is going to sound silly, maybe what Miller's trying to do with these characters is say, um, biology actually matters, right? And so when he plays the the men are brutish and this, it's not to say there's subordinates and overordinates or oppressors or sort of thing. It is to say that men and women are different. I mean, to say that in this modern political climate is, I mean, I'm probably going to lose Twitter if they ever listen to this podcast but i think that's kind of what he by blowing things out of proportion right he's showing that men and women are different he's not this is not to idealize the portrayal of women in sin city i don't want to say that or the portrayal of men but he is basically by playing up this kind of thing he is essentially saying here's the differences uh in a skewed way in a comic book way how they're how they're different and of course that's not to say all women must have triple f and a two inch waist or something like that and so maybe he's kind of playing off that sort of thing in order to say, here's how men and women are different. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I think as it's because it's a comic book world, it's super clunky. There's no real <laughs> explicit nuance. And of course, he has to play by the rule of sex cells and he has to basically pump it all full of implants and silicone and insanity in order mm -hmm. to make it sell. And I think, and that's where the issue of women in Sin City, I think becomes really difficult to discuss just because it's so... It, it, it's it's not it's obviously not a theological treatise or a philosophical treatise. It's the, that's the problem of narrative, is you you get out what you're looking for, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that kind of overshadows the interesting things he might have said, and obviously the lack of of like a main female character and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, um, it, I, I was I was just thinking, of, it's probably would be a good time to wrap up because I don't know if people are going to listen too much beyond an hour, and we're, we're closing in on that. Um, but, um, I, I was kind of, um, I wanted to maybe return briefly to the, um, cause I think this would be a good place to close on, uh, this dichotomy of Bruce Willis as a Christ character 
and then the church as a uh, as a structure of authority and how um you know i i i i don't know that this is a point that miller is consciously trying to make in the film but um i do think you know what, what and this may become from a little bit from my own you know anabaptist perspective or whatever a little bit but um it seems to me that what you're seeing there are two different ways to attempt to live out the gospel. Hmm. And there's one way, which is about hoarding power and, uh, you know, keeping the structures uh, that you, you, you think uh, are, are necessary to keep things, uh, keep, you know, keep the church where it needs to be and that kind of thing in place. Uh, in, in, you know, another film, uh, The Mission comes to mind with uh, Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro, where the, mm -hmm. uh, the Catholic Church refuses to intervene to protect um, um, the South American tribes that are uh, being sold into slavery by the Portuguese uh, because they're so worried about um, losing their influence after the Reformation has taken place. Yeah. And, you know, this idea that, well, Portuguese could always just become Protestant if we push them too hard. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, so what you sort of see here is, you know, one way of attempting to live out the gospel that utterly fails to get the point. Um, yeah. And then another way, which does it just because it is modeled after, um, modeled after Christ's willingness to suffer out of love. Um, yeah. You know, caring even just for one person. Um, you know, if, if, you know, you know, that, that, that was, that was all that sort of, uh, Hardigan needed, you know, this idea that I'm, I'm going to save this one girl's life. Um, yeah. you know, and whereas all these other people are concerned about, uh, keeping their power or keeping these structures in place, Bruce Willis is just concerned about this vulnerable young woman. Um, and, you know, keeping her, uh, safe and protecting her and, and showing love to her. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, that may be, uh, if, if, if there's only one thing, uh, a Christian could get out of this film, uh, I think that would be a, a good, a good place to start. Yeah, I would agree. I think the issue kind of boils down to, um, and this is a, I mean, you could almost say uh, to paraphrase, uh, Bruce Willis is coming out, old man dies, young girl is fair trade is the, is the idea of the, the righteous for the unrighteous or the just for the unjust or the, the just for or the, the unjust for the just even to invert it is the idea mm -hmm. also of, 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 the, of the idea of the utter self-abasement that another person will go to on behalf of another. And so you could, if you want to draw the really explicit Christ parallel, you know, you could talk about how Hardigan is, is the canonic form of what it means to be truly human and to truly live into the gospel of, of the self-emptying of oneself to be abused, um, to have your body be, uh, beaten and bruised and pierced and torn, to have your mind, you know, to go into the darkest of places to be uh, utterly abandoned uh, and forsaken, so to speak, you have, and I think that's why the story of Hardigan stands out so strongly, is that in a world of such utter darkness and where death reigns and sin reigns and misogyny reigns and all these sorts of things have their, their vice grip, you have this one story of a person willing to literally empty themselves of everything in order to save and protect another person. And what is shocking about that is that it's not common in the world that Hardigan lives in. And if we look at, and frankly, nice people doing things don't make the news in our, in our country anymore. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? 
And so it's always about, oh, this person said this on Twitter and then the world explodes or 70 women were kidnapped in Africa and it's a horrible thing. And it is a horrible thing. But the idea also is missed when we forget that there are people doing great things, you know, like, I don't know, CBE working, for example, in Africa to help educate women and, and people doing all these really good things, you know. And it's, all this stuff kind of gets lost because we forget that there is basic decency out there. And I, I think what Miller and Rodriguez do masterfully with the Hardigan story is basically saying, um, here is someone who utterly subverts everything by taking it upon himself to be the, 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 the decisive teleological act of utter uh, impoverishment for the sake of another. And that is something that, I mean, I mean, that's what we're called to do is to bear one another's burdens and sacrifice and love. And he does that, I think, really well. And it's, it's why that story has always stuck with me and why it's one of the more masterful films in terms of that respect. I mean, like I said, I think it fails on the, the sexual level and, the, you know, on these sorts of things because it loses the, the force for the trees. But on that aspect, on the aspect of suffering for the sake of another, it's, yeah, it's, it's the utter empowerment of what it means to sacrifice and to love and to, to cherish one another. Well, and that's what, that's kind of what's fascinating is people can, um, you know, always find something that they decide they don't like about religion or Christianity or the Bible or whatever, but there's something that's compelling about Christ, uh, to nearly everyone. Well, it's funny people, it's like, uh, I don't like Cardinal Rook. It's like, good, me neither. Let's go be like Hardigan. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's that thing where you can, you can always point to like, I don't know, like a mother Teresa. It's like, I don't like the Roman Catholic church. It's like, well, okay, that's fine. Have you actually read the new Testament? You know, have you read these sorts of things? Have you read Romans or something like that? And so mm-hmm. it's, it's, Philemon, which it's is one of your favorites. Thing. It's the crown jewel of Pauline theology in my work. In my <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would perhaps tend to agree with you to some extent there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm writing my uh, my paper uh, this quarter on that. So, oh, awesome! I'd love to read it. Yeah, so, I'll send it to you. It, thank you. So, if if somebody you know hears this and goes, "This Nick guy seems really cool. He's got some pretty interesting ideas. I would like to uh, uh, follow up with him and and you know read or listen to whatever else he's doing." How would they be able to do that? Oh well, I don't know why anyone would ever want to do that, but you can find me on Twitter. Um, I actually need to look up my Twitter handle. I actually, I, I'm a horrible millennial. I don't actually know my Twitter handle. It's uh, at Nick Quint, all one word, Q-U-I-E-N-T. Um, you can find me there. I'm usually tweeting out the podcast my wife and I do. It's called Split Frame of Reference. And it's we're going through women in ministry right now, but we'll be doing a lot more topics once that series is done. Next week, it's on Galatians and all that fun stuff. So yeah, it's uh, you can find me at splitframeofreference.com or on Twitter at Nick Quint. Great. Thank you very much, Nick. I really appreciate you being willing to do this for me and uh, uh, with me. And uh, that's uh, it, was a, it was a joy to have you have, have you on. It was a blessing.